0: This is the first in a series of conversations with various experts that we're calling the Red Blue Expert Series. Our first guest in this series is Elaine Battard. Elaine is a fellow at the Moran Institute at New York University. He's the author of a book about markets and the practice of urban planning titled Order Without Design: How Markets Shape Cities. What's interesting about Elaine is he's worked across many different cultures and in many different cities across the world, thinking about urban planning and how best to organize transportation within these cities. His experience is vast. He's worked in places as diverse as Bangkok, Thailand, San Salvador in El Salvador, Port-au-Prince in Haiti, Sana in Yemen, New York City, Paris, Tlemcen in Algeria, and Chandigarh in India. We've gotten to know Elaine quite well over the last few years, and always appreciate our conversations with him, given both the richness of his experience and his ability to draw on personal examples based in actually having worked in these places. In this conversation, we cover a number of different topics, including how innovation can be leveraged in the process of helping cities to grow, the importance of humility at certain times for open planners, the importance of looking at data and information in order to get city planning right, and also the importance of acting in order to achieve specific outcomes. Elaine grounds these lessons in very concrete examples of how different cities operate and different things have played out over the length of his career. Elaine, great to have you on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. It's always a pleasure.
0: Maybe an interesting way, Elaine, to to frame this conversation is to talk about innovation in cities because I think we tend to think of urban planning as a very top-down process, but maybe a lot of the most interesting things that happen in cities aren't necessarily planned.
1: Absolutely, and that's by the way, is true. Everywhere in the world, every city. I don't make much difference between cities in developing countries or in industrialized countries. They have exactly the same issues. And the issue is this the wealth of cities is created by individuals and individual firms uh, who are, are doing trial and error. And they should be allowed to do those trial and error. There should be enough flexibility for them to decide where to locate what to do uh, how to use the land at the same time because you have an agglomeration of a large number of people you have to have an infrastructure which link all these private initiative together and uh, maybe planning is mostly the planning of infrastructure uh, and much less the planning of uh, individual building, uh, which should have much more flexibility. So, for instance, having, like in New York, something like eighted eight type of commercial area is not very useful. You know, it assumes that the planner know exactly what type of commercial area should go where, which goes completely against those innovation And where in fact, at the same time, there is a neglect of the infrastructure aspect of the city, either because it's fragmented between different administration, or because, again, some people are more interested in, for instance, bike lanes rather than the network of electricity or, or the network of internet or something like that.
0: But, but I think about something like micro-mobility infrastructure, bike lanes, which are not in the traditional kind of planning framework. And, for instance, we were in Dubai, and talking about how they had challenges getting people onto the Dubai Metro. We were talking to the RTA, which is the Road Transit Authority. And it was interesting to me when we kind of drilled down into the structure of of the RTA, and I think this is not unique to Dubai by any means, it's it's the norm. Micromobility had been handed over to some disconnected branch of the government, that was not necessarily thinking about the ways in which people could take mobility to get to the subway. Because Dubai is very hot, and because of the, the structure built quite a lot around cars, the distances to most of the transit stops were quite difficult to get to. So mobility was maybe a natural integration that you'd want to build out. But there wasn't a lot of ways in which the organizational structures could connect those things together. I kind of wonder how often it is that new things that are coming along. I mean, obviously transit options don't change at such a rapid pace, but there's like this ossification that happens as an agency or authority has gotten used to doing something a certain way and doesn't stop and think about from a kind of more first principles perspective, like should we be maybe doing things completely differently?
1: This is universal also, you see that, uh, because again, they don't think about transport they think about one aspect, they want to run their little part of the utility or, or the transport thing efficiently. That's why very often even they will think that uh, if next to a subway station you have parking for bicycles, that will in fact make things difficult. They would rather have a, a clean subway entrance because they just think about the running and the design of their subway they are not interested in the overall transport system of people who are not using the subway yet. How do we get city managers first to go across boundaries so that they look at the city again as a labor market or as a consumer market rather than just a small group of people who have to be helped individually in each neighborhood. So that, that, I think, is the main challenge. This will be helped by having enough data to show the commuting time of a different group of people. Singapore does that. Singapore monitors the commuting time neighborhood by neighborhood. And they try to modify the infrastructure to improve this. And they have usually a quantitative target saying, from this neighborhood, the people going to work commuting time is... 35 minutes, and it's going to come down to 30 or 28 minutes. If we want to manage our networks better, we need completely different type of data. It's
0: interesting that you mention Singapore, because I think it's kind of seen as a paradigm for how to plan things from the top down uh, effectively. We've had a few conversations about it in the past. But for instance, in Singapore, you don't really see bike lane infrastructure, micro-mobility infrastructure built out that much and i i feel like yeah. they're missing an opportunity you know with bikes before it it's maybe too hot but with e-bikes it seems like a natural thing to fit right, into yes. the ecosystem yes, right,
1: right yes. so that's a bit of a problem sometime when cities goes to bike to e-bike because e-bikes are faster they have some accident and some cities in china ban e-bikes i think shanghai is one of them i don't know if it's still true now but one city who favoured e-bike from the beginning was Chengdu. Chengdu is now a city of seven million people; it's not in consequence, and uh, practically a lot of the commuters are using e-bikes, and it's extremely efficient, including on the housing side. Using e-bike allows some area to be developed for housing and be accessible the rest of the city without having a subway stop nearby or something, which usually requires a certain number of years, you know, so you could develop land. The, the other example, which is not bike, it's motorcycle, but also moped, is Hanoi. You know, Hanoi has, uh, I think, one of the best housing stock, given the income of the city. They have no slums, really. And I think it's entirely due to using mopeds and electric bikes or electric motorcycle. I think that the flexibility in transport has a, an enormous influence also on land use and has a positive influence on housing affordability.
0: You've, you've got a large diversity of different cities, so th- the same solutions won't necessarily work everywhere. You've got new innovation well, yes, periodically right. happening. Yes. You've got New kinds of solutions like micro mobility coming up in the future. You might have autonomous vehicles. You've had a rise in in freight and goods delivery. How do we get to good outcomes? Because it seems like we end up with a lot of bad outcomes. And I feel like if you were to tell a set of stories, the one of Vietnam is interesting. But I don't feel like there are that many cities that have gone. Oh, Vietnam is doing this. How do we also not have slums in our city? So, like, how does good stuff happen in the way we plan cities?
1: Not only cities do not copy Hanoi, but the people in Hanoi, the planners, wanted to get rid of the motorcycle and the moped. Because themselves were driving cars, and they thought uh, they were messy, you know, and, and they, they are not without problem, but, uh, well, one of the problem was noise and pollution, which, again, will be solved by having electric bicycle and electric scooters. There, there is a problem of perception, or, or considering progress, you know, in some cities, people consider that progress is using the car, because uh, People who are more affluent use car and they want everybody to be affluent. That's why, for instance, even in a country like India, in Ahmedabad, uh, one of the major problems in formal housing is that they require parking space, one the parking space per apartment. And at the densities they have, they, they have to have underground parking, which is extremely expensive, and make housing very expensive. So they think they are being progressive by saying, haha, we have, where everybody has a car, everybody will have a parking lot.
0: Yeah, it seems to be a mistaking of this is what something looks like, and therefore that's what we want.
1: Because they don't look at transport, they look at one element of transport. At a time, it's the same when people want to build uh, new cities. When you you see, for instance, Neom in Saudi Arabia, this absurd idea of a linear city, because they th- they feel well, if you have only one line, it's very easy to to run and things like that, and you could have high speed. The linear city of 150 kilometers long and one kilometer wide is the most inefficient form of city, uh, but. They optimize only one... So, sometimes when I discuss my my colleagues in different cities, say, so if you optimize the design of a city to optimize a sewer system, for instance, to have the most efficient and cheap sewer system, you will end up with a sewer plant in the CBD, you know, because that will make the sewer the most efficient but it will make the city extremely inefficient of course when i was in yemen planner in yemen they were developing a new water supply system and the engineer came to see me i was the planner and say you should prevent the hills from developing the hills against aransa because uh, you know if we if the city develop only in the flat area I will save at the time $5 million in a pumping station and uh, you know I will not have to put water tower in an elevated place. And that's a, a significant reduction in the cost of water. However, in order to save $5 million in infrastructure of water, they were throwing away hundreds of millions of dollars of land values because they were small hills which were very easy to develop, which were very close to the city center. So you see, uh, this optimization of one aspect is extremely dangerous because precisely a city is made of connection of very, very complex system. Now, how do we get rid of that? This kind of trying to optimize only one aspect of the city at the expense of everything else. And that's why I think markets are, are so absolutely necessary because markets tell you, What really the people want?
0: So, I think the interesting thing about markets is they allow two different things. The the one is they allow people to act. You talked about people having opportunity, being able to vote with their feet. And that's kind of tied to liberty or freedom. You know, that if you have a marketplace, you have choices. And the kind of existence of that allows citizens or consumers or whatever you want to call them to act within that. But I think another aspect that's really interesting and, and I think you've thought a lot about it, is also you get information that isn't obvious it, it aggregates a certain kind of information about value because if people are willing to pay something for something then it suggests that there is something that you might not have, have seen before and also I think the, the kind of subtle simplicity and power of markets is they can take a whole set of complex things, you gave this example of water towers in, in Santa where one person is optimizing one thing. But if you can bring everything into a collective marketplace, basically pull it in like a big data lake, so to speak, then you can get these true integrations and kind of see what the real trade-offs are and also make much better decisions around that. And then I think another thing is the lack of integration between decision makers. I and mean, you've probably seen this firsthand. I mean, the the story in, in Sana is is so jolting because... I know, you know, somewhere, like in many places, somebody just made a decision and it wasn't necessarily for the right reason and yet it's affecting their life in, in this way. And I feel like there's so many things about our worlds that determine that way. But more concretely, there are challenges around decision makers and like who are the people deciding. And who are they deciding for? Who do they think they're beholden to as their constituents? And then what are they deciding? Like, are they only thinking about cars or are they thinking about transit in in a cohesive way? And I think these two things kind of merge together, you know, into this this kind of topic of markets in in really interesting ways.
1: Yes. Maybe the example of 80% of the curb of Manhattan is used by free parking. So, again, it's free parking precisely because there is no market in public space. Uh, and uh, and the city itself could create a market but cannot do it because the people who are voting there are used to free parking and they themselves are against new development because they say, oh, if you build more apartments here we will have to share this free parking with more people and therefore we don't want it so you see, wh- whenever the market is not working it's up to the politician to take a decision they will take the right decision as politicians, but the wrong decision in terms of the welfare of the people. You know, as one, I think it was a, a president of the European Union, say, we know what to do uh, and to make things right and make things working right. We don't know to get re-elected after we have improved the things. You know, that will be the case in New York. Any mayor will say no more free parking will never be reelected.
0: elected So it, it seems that there's these... Fortunate coincidences that allow a certain kind of organizational structure to lead to better outcomes and other times to worse outcomes. But undergirding however a city is structured and however the constituents are, what should we be optimizing for or thinking about? I mean, your book's called Order Without Design, right? So yes, yes, yes. How do you create the organizational structures? You, You describe it kind of as rigidity, while also giving that freedom within it for marketplaces to act and also I think over time to respond to shifts and to reevaluate and, and re repurpose things.
1: The luck we have in at least in market economy is that we have in every city this very clear separation of public space from private space. So the freedom of people to innovate is mostly in the private space. I think uh, market signals should be prevalent there. you know I'm not against regulation, but any regulation should be tested f- to see how uh, the negative aspect uh, you know limiting the choice of people versus the the assumed benefits of the regulation. on the other hand, on the other part of the land allocation, which is the public space, this Unfortunately, is done top down, but it should be clear that if you design a, a sewer system or a subway system, it's top down. You know, you cannot ask um, every citizen, "Would you want a station here or here?" It has to be designed from an engineering point of view, an optimization of, of things. However, what should be clear is that this top-down design is there to serve the existing population the way it distributes itself in the private realm. Where a counterexample of that for instance I remember in Jakarta where they were trying to create a light rail system. The planner of the light rail say in order to make light rail financially viable the the city should oblige people to have higher density around the light rail and therefore Reduce density in other areas, which are not served by light rail. So you see here, they were reversing the priority. The priority for the light rail is to serve the population, which is there the way they want to distribute themselves around the city. What is wrong is, let's say, if you design top-down, but then you say, in order to make it work, the private realm also has to be affected by regulations so that it will serve my infrastructure. So that's the main problem, that you have to accept the result of the market, that means where the people decide to locate and their activities, and the infrastructure has to serve that, rather than to say, I design an infrastructure, and therefore uh, the people will have. To follow this infrastructure and concentrate in the area around my infrastructure. I don't know if you have seen in Singapore, especially in the newest station like Woodland, where the, the incredible integration between bus and subway. You know, the bus itself stop inside the subway station. And when you exit the subway, you have an electronic sign which tells you which bus is leaving where at which gate within the subway station. So you see, this type of integration is fantastic. I'm not sure uh, many cities are able to do that, because usually the bus is run by a different company from the subway, and they are interested in, again, optimizing the bus, not optimizing transport.
2: Talking about light infrastructure versus heavy infrastructure, you talked about how much easier it is to build bike lanes, or you know, Uber can just roll out on roads, whereas building subways yes, right, is, yeah. is challenging. I think this touches to something that a lot of Americans kind of feel vaguely, but it's hard to put your finger on. And it's our government's capabilities of achieving big projects. And I feel like in the absence of capacity, the most hope we can have is for sort of rapid, light touch type of projects. I mean, you've seen with Jeanette Siddi Khan under the Bloomberg administration in New York, her whole MO was how can we quickly get paint on roads to change the way traffic moves. And it made a big difference, right? It opened up public yes, space yes. To, to pedestrians. It, it kind of rebalanced things. But it was entirely focused on keeping in mind that it's really hard to do anything. How can we just go around and, and change things in paint, right? right?
1: I think that here you're, you're reaching a very interesting point this rigidity. Everything is trial and error. If you have a small shop somewhere, it's a bakery in the wrong place. It's easy to correct and it will be corrected very quickly. If you put a subway station in the wrong place, it will never be corrected. Things will
2: correct themselves around the subway station. Yes,
1: and that's why I'm very much against what we call megastructure. There is a trend now to give an entire neighborhood to one architect I've seen that I, I think I quoted in some paper in Istanbul uh, where an enormous uh, neighborhood is given to design to Zara Hadid. it's an excellent firm as architect they are very good architects there's no doubt about it but as soon as they design a neighborhood you have a mega structure. So the private realm here, eventually it will all be privatized and you create an enormous rigidity because again, it's a mega structure.
0: I find this idea of building blocks and maybe you can call it like an urban pattern fascinating because once you set this in motion, it kind of determines what's possible and and how things might play out. So I think for instance, like the urban pattern of New York versus the urban pattern of Detroit. Detroit yes. literally has these roads, labeled, You know, everybody's heard of like eight eight mile road or right, like b- because it comes before nine mile road and after seven mile road. Like there's w- yes. you know mile by mile city blocks effectively, and so you've got this massive sprawl because everything's been kind of laid out on on that particular unit of measurement and it's not on what you could describe maybe as a as a human scale it's on a car scale Um, and so once things are set out the urban pattern is set out on on these much larger building blocks then the only way to get around is is with cars and the only kind of way to design a city implies a certain kind of pattern where you've, you've got all this kind of car space i'm also kind of curious you described this challenge in jakarta where they built the light rail and then try to pull the city around it, you know, forcing it. And this idea of, I want to call it humility in in urban design. Like, how do you understand what your job is as an urban planner and also understand what your job is not? Because I think there's a tendency to think that when you can make choices, you must make choices. I've been, this is a weird transition, but I've been watching The Crown and the the Queen often says the hardest thing is to do nothing, but that is our job. Like I think oftentimes as an urban planner, looking at a city and realizing that your job is in fact to do nothing rather than something might be a really, really
1: difficult position to uh, find yourself in. I, I would say as a planner, it's not to do nothing, but to observe what people are doing, to monitor what people are doing very carefully, and then trying to respond to it. Rather than to say the city should develop to the north and uh, the CBD should be dense and should be here. You just look what's happening and you say, what can I do to make things easier to serve the people the way they are? So it requires certain humility indeed. In a way, for me, it was easier because I worked a lot in cities which were culturally foreign to me. If I have been working in France mostly, Probably I would have a set idea about the way French cities should be designed. But if you work in India or Yemen or in China or Indonesia, the culture is very different and people have different priorities. Therefore, your job is to really observe what they are doing because they have different values. And so in a way, it's easier to work... If you have this humility about culture, if you travel, you should have a switch and you switch off your culture when you move to another thing. So so you see, you, you have to respect what the people are doing in the private realm and try to serve it, rather than say, they are a bunch of idiots and the city should develop here and there.
2: Olaf, you said that you think that the challenge of planning is just do as little as possible or realize that you, you shouldn't make decisions. Elaine, you said the job was to be humble and to be more responsive to what people want. Both of these things kind of remind me of a conversation, which is the conversation in which I originally heard about your book, Elaine. And that was with David Bloch Schachter. He used to be the CTO, Chief Technology Officer of MBTA Massachusetts Bay Transit Authority. But in that conversation, we were talking about sidewalk labs and we were talking about whether or not it was hubristic to try top-down planning, etc. And he told us his story of how he started his career as an interaction designer. So you were designing products, maybe digital, maybe physical, where you were you had to watch how people used them. And if you saw people were using them incorrectly, you wouldn't assume that the people were dumb. You assume that your design is bad. And he said that that really informed him uh, the way he tried to change MBTA from inside. I don't want to speak for him, but I assume that it was quite frustrating to try making a transit authority more responsive to what people did versus just to assume that the people don't know what they're doing. If you were to try fixing the way that planners and city officials think about things to give them a book or give them access to expand their thinking, in your case, it was traveling and realizing that your cultural norms didn't apply to a Chinese city and kind of looking outside the box. What do you think is needed for our leaders to learn and to open their minds to start thinking about this differently?
1: Well, put yourself in the shoes of somebody else who is using the city, you know, a plumber or a guy who works in a restaurant. Einstein, in in his memoir, says that he discovered some physical law by imagining himself being a photon and going in space and uh, what would happen to him if he traveled at the speed of light. Try to solve a problem by trying to imagine uh, yourself in different situations. And then, of course, you can talk with those people too. But I think that if you start imagining being in their shoes, that will help.
0: It's interesting that you give this example of imagining being in somebody's shoes. Because when I wrote my book, one of the angles I took was writing out what I call user stories, just like trying to figure out how different people interact with certain things. And I was was writing specifically about something um, that I think has emerged uh, over recent years. You you talk a lot about marketplaces and labor marketplaces, real estate marketplaces, and how they they give tools. But I, I don't think there, until recently, was a real marketplace for transportation in the sense yeah. that you can buy standalone trips. You'd yeah. much more own a car, which is you've got a marketplace for owning cars, but that marketplace doesn't translate into price signals for how people right. use yeah. their cars, which which is yeah. this weird effect where I think you then have planners almost automatically working in a kind of dark space of like, right, you yeah. talked about Singapore is like a good example of it, but for the most part, you don't have... That much yeah, control yeah. Okay. over how people use yeah. their cars you create the yeah. space and the people come and they do things in that space so trying to imagine through this lens of user stories how people use trip marketplaces and use trips for different purposes and i think as you dive into how trip marketplaces are evolving and the diversity of them how many different kinds of trips people make and all the different kinds of reasons people yeah. make trips and to some extent the process for me was like wow there's this massive diversity and at the same time there are only a few categories of different kinds of trips people do make they go to work they visit their friends you know they go to the doctor they go shopping they take their, their kids to school like those are those are the five big categories of what they're doing at those places so it's interesting to kind of think about that complexity and also then break it down into a new kind of simplicity and then work
1: from there in my book I give the example of this woman in South Africa Uh, who who, uh, you know, clean offices. And uh, she has a trip. She spent five hours in transport. And she's not poor. She has a regular job. She has a minimum wage. And she has heavily subsidized houses. So she has a comfortable house. But she escapes statistics. And so I describe in the book she had to walk to a collective taxi to the train and then to another train, then to another collective taxi and so on. So that's why it could take five hours. Uh, You could say it's a ruined life. And and I'm afraid that the new poor in our city will not be people who who are starving but have a life which is completely skewed by the time they spent making a living, that's the case, uh, transport could be. What struck me in this uh, South African case is that she's not poor, technically, but her life, uh, she has children, I mean, how does she see her children? Does she has time educating her children? Does she transmit the culture? Because if she spent eight hours working and five hours uh, in, in transport... I
0: think an interesting question is whether she thinks she has a choice. And the interesting thing about marketplaces, actually, I have a friend who's a professor of philosophy he looks at Hegel and what Hegel has to say about marketplaces that's his his focus and Hegel's got some really interesting points about marketplaces which is they're not necessarily bad they 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 force you to think about your optionality because when you have lots of different choices between this and that you're forced to think about what it is you want as an individual and and how to weigh those things and I think that's like one of the weird things about cars in America is it's so simple you need to get a car like yes, and when you're 16 yes, yes. you need to get a driver's license and yes. it was the same for me in south africa growing up because everything's also built around cars and most for most people it's you know not considered safe to right, yes. to commute yes. any other way but when you start having these trip marketplaces where you can take an uber you mentioned uber and it's and its flexibility but that's the nature of every trip marketplace it, Stands up quite quickly, it's quite flexible. I mean, urban planners have kind of tried to swat these things down, um, yes, like mosquitoes, yes, right, yeah. in part yes, because yes. they think you know doing nothing is much harder than doing something, and not having yes. control is worse than having control.. Yes, right, yes, yeah. but that's not necessarily you know what what users want. and And I think this is a very extreme example. Um, of a lot of the urban planning challenges you described earlier. But you see,
1: again, in the case of this woman, if she had a motorcycle or even a a moped, she would take only an hour and a half for that transport because it's not that far, and the the road infrastructure is is well developed. But uh, at the time, I was told that that will not be possible because in this township to keep a a moped for a woman, stopping at a traffic light, it would be hijacked. So she has no choice.
2: Elaine, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you so much. And thank you for inviting me. Always very happy. It's very stimulating to have this conversation.